I have an older brother. An older brother who is always taunting and tweaking me when we were little kids. I mean, that's what older brothers do, right? I remember one day we were sitting at the dinner table and I used the word schedule. And he said, it's not pronounced schedule, it's pronounced schedule. And I said, no, it's pronounced schedule. And he said, where'd you learn that? In shul? See what I'm talking about? He was always tweaking me like that. And we were always debating. One day over dinner, we had a major debate and the debate was over this question. Where is the front of the shower? Think about that. A shower. When you, you take a shower, we argued about where the front of the shower was. Now, my older brother, he claimed that the front of the shower was actually the door. The door that you step in to get into the shower with the curtain and so on. That's the front of the shower. I said, no, no, no. The front of the shower is the nozzle where the water comes out. That's the front of the shower. Well, I was about 11. He was 14. Over the dinner table, we were having this major knockdown, drag out debate about where the front of the shower was. And my parents listened for an hour and they laughed. And then at the end of it all, they said, just let it go. Let it go, you two. But I couldn't let it go. I just couldn't let it go. And so I did some, secretly did some studying that week. And I went to the only place I could go as a, a young boy. I mean, the internet wouldn't be invented for a couple decades still. And so I pulled out a dictionary and I did some studying. So a few days later, I brought some props to the dinner table. I had created using a shoebox this shower <laughs> and I used a paper clip to represent the shower nozzle. And I brought it to the table and I said, here, Mitch, hit my brother's name. I said, this action figure represents you. I want you to place yourself in the shower as you would normally be standing during the normal use of the shower. So place yourself in the shower as you would be during normal use. So my brother took the action figure and he did something like this. This is a very tall action figure, but he placed him like this, sort of facing the shower nozzle. I said, okay, that's very interesting. I said, now take this dictionary and open it to the word front and read to me what you read there. And the dictionary that I had, it said front, the direction you face during normal use. I said, so Mitch, what you just told me and everyone at this dinner table is that the nozzle is the front of the shower because that's what you face during normal use. I rest my case. Well, he said, your case is full of holes, though it's been about 40 years now, and he's never actually told me where those holes are. The only hole I see is the front of the shower, Mitch, if you're watching, but I digress. You see, I learned early in life. If you want to end up with the right answer, you've got to start with the right sources. The writer of the Gospel of Matthew described a debate that Jesus once had with some religious leaders. Now, these particular religious leaders did not believe in life after death. They taught that once you die, it's all over. You're finished. You just fade to black. And in their attempt to illustrate the silliness of the concept of life after death, they told Jesus a story, a story about marriage. Now, it was the story as they made up the story, a story of a woman who had been married seven times and all seven of her husbands died. And they concluded their story with a punchline of a conclusion. They said, well, Jesus, she had seven husbands and they all died. So whose wife will she be in heaven? Whose wife will she be in eternity? 
Well, Jesus didn't hesitate in his response. Jesus said this, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. He says, your problem is you're making a mistake and your mistake is you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Jesus taught, if you want to end up with the right answer, you got to start with the right source. And for Jesus, the right source was the scriptures. Jesus believed and Jesus taught that the scriptures contain God's design for humanity, including marriage. Now, as followers of, believe, of Jesus, we believe what he believed. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to search the scriptures concerning the topic of marriage. And we're going to ask and answer some crucial questions when it comes to marriage. For example, next week, we're going to ask and answer the question, well, how do I know if marriage is for me? You know, maybe I'm not the marrying kind. Do I have to be married? We're going to learn some fascinating answers to that question next week. How do you know if marriage is for you? Now, if you determine next week, yeah, marriage is for me, then the following week, we're going to learn in week three, so what should I look for in a marriage partner? And then week four, we're going to ask the question, so how can you build a healthy marriage? Week five, we're going to ask the question, how can you revive a dying marriage? And then week six, we're going to conclude this series with the topic, so what are the biblical options when a marriage fails? Well, today, we're beginning this series by asking the question, so what is God's design for marriage? How, what's a marriage supposed to look like? How is it supposed to work? Now, from a biblical perspective, since God created humanity, God is the only one who is in position to actually define humanity or to determine what is the design for humanity. And God designed humanity as male and female. Two equal yet distinct expressions of humanity. And God designed it so that these two equal yet distinct expressions would need one another to relationally balance each other out. We learned this a few weeks ago. Men need the unique perspective and qualities that God placed in women. And women need the unique perspective and qualities that God placed in men. This relational balancing act takes place every time men and women interact with each other. Their distinctions work together to create a healthy society. And one of the areas where this balancing takes place is the relationship called marriage. God designed marriage to be the foundation of the family unit. The, the marriage relationship is the relational bedrock upon which every family is to be built. So clearly, marriage has a crucial role in society. Okay, so then, biblically speaking, what is a marriage? Well, as followers of Jesus, we look to him to answer that question. And he gives us the answer. It's recorded in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. We looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to start reading at verse 5. Jesus quotes the Old Testament and he says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And the Creator said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Now, as I said, we taught on this passage extensively a few weeks ago, so I'm just going to briefly touch on it here today. But in this passage, Jesus lays out the biblical design for marriage. In this passage, we're taught, as your outline says, that marriage is an exclusive, lifelong, intimate relationship between one man and one woman. I'll say that again so you can get it down on your outline. Marriage is an exclusive, lifelong, intimate relationship between one man and one woman. That's God's design. Now listen, I recognize that there are different definitions and expressions of marriage in our culture today. But we're not studying anthropology, we're studying theology. We're not studying what humanity does, we're studying what God designed. And according to Jesus, God designed marriage to be an exclusive, lifelong, intimate relationship between one man and one woman. Susan is a woman in her late 50s, and she was returning to her parents' home uh, to attend a funeral in the family. And at the funeral home, her mother was leading Susan around, introducing her to various friends and neighbors and, and family members. And then, so she takes her daughter, Susan, and she says, Susan, you remember Pastor Jones, don't you? Now, Susan didn't remember Pastor Jones, but she was kind of embarrassed and, and put on the spot. So Susan, in her mind, thought, oh, this must be the pastor who performed my grandmother's funeral a few years ago. So Susan faked it, and she says, ah, oh, yes, Pastor Jones, so wonderful to see you, though I just wish we weren't always meeting under such tragic circumstances. The pastor kind of looked awkward and said, yes, okay, good to see you, Susan. And he walked away. Susan's mother said, what did you say that for? That's the pastor who performed your wedding ceremony. Marriage is often portrayed as a battlefield, isn't it? Describing marriage, one woman wrote this. She said, men are like fine wine. They start out like grapes. And it's the woman's job to stomp on them, to keep them in the dark, until they mature into something that you'd want to have dinner with. In response, a man wrote this. Well, women, they're like fine wine as well. They start out all fresh and fruity, but with age, they become full-bodied, they go sour, and they give you a headache. Well, we learned a few moments ago that God designed these men and women as equal yet distinctly different creatures. So how do you bring them together and, in the words of Jesus, create a one-flesh experience? Now, I have discovered a verse in the Bible that if you follow that verse, you will never, ever, ever have one single marital problem. I'm serious, folks. I have discovered a verse. It's bulletproof. If you obey this verse, you will never have one single problem in a marriage. Are you, would you be interested in knowing what this verse is? I am about to put it up on the screen right now. It's 1 Corinthians 7.1. Here it is. It is good for a man not to marry. If you follow that verse, you will not experience one single marital problem. Not one. And Paul goes on to explain why in verse 28. He says, because those who marry will face many troubles in this life. 
I've been pastoring for decades now, and people over the years have come to see me and to talk about trouble in their marriage, and many times they're embarrassed or ashamed or they feel awkward. Uh, they somehow think they're unusual because they have marriage problems. Folks, problems and trouble come with marriage. It comes with the territory. Paul said, listen, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. This series that we're beginning today is designed to equip us to minimize and to navigate those troubles. And a key passage in this equipping process just happens to be one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. What we're about to study is one of the most misunderstood, misquoted, and abused passages in Scripture. It's been used to harm wives, and it's been used to harm marriages. And that's tragic. Because when understood correctly, this passage is guaranteed to give life to marriages. So please, listen very carefully for the next few moments. Because we are about to bring clarity to a passage that has brought confusion for many years. Now, as we've already seen, marriage is a partnership. And like any partnership in life, the success is determined by the ability of both partners to understand and to live their assigned roles. You're saying, wait, you're saying there are roles in a marriage? Yes, there, there are roles. You say, well, where are these roles laid out? Well, the clearest passage is found in the New Testament letter of Ephesians, the fifth chapter of a letter written to a first century church in the ancient city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. Now, the writer of this letter was a man named Paul. Paul was one of the earliest and greatest leaders in the church. Paul was a man who previously hunted down and killed Christ followers until Jesus made a resurrection appearance to Paul, radically changing the direction of Paul's life. Well, Paul wrote this letter to encourage and instruct people on how to live successful lives as Christ followers, and that included living successful marriages if the Christ followers were married. So Paul equips them by outlining the role of a husband and the role of a wife as God designed them. So starting at Ephesians 5, verse 22, let's read it together. He said, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Okay, let, let's stop right there for a moment. I could already feel the tension increasing through the camera. I can imagine what some of you are thinking right now. You're out there and you're thinking, Wives, submit, are you kidding me, Darren? Seriously? You're going to teach from this passage? Don't you realize that this is like Victorian? No, this is past Victorian. This is caveman territory. Darren, this is a passage that was used for centuries to dominate women. Women have been liberated from this kind of stuff. Seriously, Darren, why are you teaching from this? Let me say, first of all, in one sense, you're absolutely right. Women have been dominated for centuries, and it was wrong. Yes, women have had to fight to regain their God-given status of equality with men. And those gains should be maintained and they should be celebrated. But the only way that this passage can be used as a tool of domination is by abusing this passage, by ripping it out of its context. Well, you say, seriously, in what possible context could this passage not be seen as abusive? Stick with me. I'm going to answer that question. You might be surprised. 
All that I'm asking is that you open your mind to what the biblical writer is actually teaching before you reject this passage. Okay, so let's get back to it. There are biblical roles for husbands and wives, and Paul begins by outlining the role of the wife. Let's put this passage back on the screen. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, let's get right to the heart of this. What does the word submit mean? Is Paul describing two classes of people, superior husbands and inferior wives? Now, this original letter was written in ancient Greek, and the word translated submit was hypotasso. It was the ancient Greek word um, meaning submit, but it was literally a military term. It was a, a, a word that denoted uh, to rank under or to willingly subject yourself to, to someone else. Now, it must be noted that this word has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with a person's value. I was watching a documentary recently, and in this documentary, a, a woman was being interviewed, and this woman described how she rose through the ranks of a bank that she worked in. She began in this bank as a part-time teller, and then she moved to be a full-time teller, and then she moved to be the head teller, and then she became the assistant branch manager, and then the branch manager, and then the regional manager, and then a vice president, and now she is the president of that bank. Now. Did she rise in value as a human being as she rose in the ranks of that uh, company? Is the vice president a superior human being to the regional uh, uh, branch manager? Of course not. Leadership roles are not about value and worth, they're about efficiency and order. Just because you submit to a person does not mean that you have less value than that person. As your outline says, to submit to someone simply means that you recognize and respect that person's role. I'm going to say that again. To submit to a person simply means that you recognize and you respect that person's role. Listen, do you realize that Jesus, God in flesh, lived a life of submission? According to the Bible, as your outline says, Jesus submitted to his earthly parents. Speaking of Joseph and Mary, the Bible says that Jesus was obedient to them. He submitted to his parents. What does that mean? Well, I suppose it means as, as a child that he went to bed when he was told to go to bed. He ate his vegetables when Mary and Joseph told him to eat his vegetables. He didn't say, hey, I'm God in flesh. I'm not going to eat these Brussels sprouts. I didn't like him when I made him, and I don't like him now. No, he submitted to his parents. He was obedient to them. But not only did Jesus submit to his earthly parents, as your outline says, Jesus also submitted to his heavenly Father. Listen to how Jesus himself described his relationship with the Father. Jesus said in John 5, 19, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Jesus said, I look to the Father as my leader, and I only do what he directs me to do. 
In another instance, Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. Well, hold on. Was Jesus saying that the Father was of superior quality to the Son? Was Jesus saying that the Father is a higher class of being than the Son? No, not at all. Not when you look at all of what Scripture teaches. Because Jesus also said, the Father and I are one. Jesus also said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Scripture also says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when you pull it all together, what Jesus and the Scriptures are teaching is this. The Father and the Son are equal in value, yet with differing roles. They are equal, yet the Son willingly submitted to the Father's leadership role. And wives are to do the same when it comes to the husband's leadership role. Just like the Father was assigned the role of leadership over the Son, and just like Jesus was assigned the role of leadership in the church, the husband has been assigned the role of leadership in a marriage. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And Paul says that this leadership is in everything. Now, by the way, what does that mean? In everything does not mean that a husband can force his wife to do something against her moral code. In everything does not mean that a husband can force his wife to do something that's against her conscience. In everything does not mean that a wife should remain in a situation where her life or her children are in danger. In everything is simply a way of saying as a general life principle. It simply means that the husband is to be seen as the leader in the home. So does this mean that the husband is the king? Does this mean that the husband gets everything that he wants and the wife is to bow to his every wish and every whim? Well, if you stop right here, it would look that way, wouldn't it? And that's what many people have done over the years. They've stopped right here. But to do that is not only to abuse a wife, it's also to abuse the scripture. To stop here is to teach about biblical submission, but it's not to teach about biblical marriage. To stop here is to describe only one wing of a bird. And so if you stop here, you'll never get your marriage off the ground, not with one wing. But we're not going to stop here because the Apostle Paul didn't stop here. So let's keep reading. Paul goes on to say, Now husbands... You love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a, a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. So what's a husband's role in marriage? A husband is called to love his wife. Now, the word translated love here is a word we know very well at Broadway Church. It's the one word that sums up everything we do at Broadway. It answers the question, why, here at Broadway Church. It's the ancient Greek word agape. It's the ancient Greek word describing the purest love imaginable. We've learned in English there's one word, love, and it covers a whole wide ground. But in the ancient Greek language, they had four words for love. A word for uh, erotic or romantic love, a word for patriotic love, a, world, a word for familial love, and then this word, agape, the word for unconditional love, the word for the summit peak of love. 
the highest form of love, the purest love imaginable. And that's the word Paul used. That is the quality of love that a husband is to have in, as an expression towards his wife. Husbands, he wrote, agape love your wives, just as Christ agape loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as your outline says, a husband's love for his wife is to be sacrificial, putting her needs before his needs. A husband's love for his wife is to be sacrificial, putting her needs before his needs. Think of what Jesus has done for us. We were separated from God. Our sin had separated us from him. And so we were doomed on our own. So what did he do? Jesus came in the form of a humanity and he took on the sin and shame of our lives. He got what we deserved. He paid our moral debts. He, he suffered on our behalf. He put our needs ahead of his needs. He died in our place. He did this as a way of offering us a gift of forgiveness and, and, and eternal life. And now you and I are given the opportunity to accept this gift or reject this gift. And if you accept this gift that he purchased on your behalf, then you will spend eternity with him. You will spend the rest of your existence fulfilling God's design and purpose for your life. By the way, have you accepted that gift? The gift of forgiveness and cleansing? If you haven't done that yet, at the conclusion of my teaching today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that very thing. What Jesus has done for us is the model for what a husband is to do for his wife. Paul's wrote, husbands, agape love your wives just as Christ agape loved the church and gave himself up for her. A husband is to put his wife in the spotlight. A husband is to do all that he can to see that his wife's life is fulfilled. A husband is to do all that he can to see that his wife is a better person just for being with him. That is the role of a husband according to God's design. So women who are watching, let me ask you something. Would you have any problem submitting to the leadership of a man who is dedicated to loving you with such intensity, with such intentionality? Well, that is God's design for marriage. Marriage is an exclusive, lifelong, intimate relationship between one man and one woman. An exclusive, lifelong, intimate relationship where a woman submits to a man who loves her with the purest love imaginable. That is God's design for marriage. And that should be our goal in marriage. You see, marriage really isn't that complicated when you get right down to it. The simple truth is this. Your marital satisfaction is directly linked to your marital obedience. Obedience to what? Obedience to God's design. And that brings us to today's big idea. Here it is. Here's the summar, summation of what we're learning about God's design for marriage today. Put your spouse first and your marriage will last. Put your spouse first and your marriage will last. Whether you're a husband or a wife, your role is to place the needs of your spouse above your own needs. That's God's design for marriage. That's how marriage is designed to flourish. Put your spouse first and your marriage will last. And when marriage is lived according to this design, it's a beautiful thing. 
Marriage is designed to be the foundation of healthy families. Healthy families produce healthy children. Healthy children grow into healthy adults. Healthy adults create healthy societies. And it all begins, it's all rooted in healthy marriages. And a healthy marriage is a choice you make. Put your spouse first and your marriage will last. That's why we're doing two things uh, this fall here at Broadway Church. Number one, that's why we're embarking upon this series we're calling the Marriage Series. We're trying to teach and equip ourselves on how to have healthy marriages and how to even revive dying marriages. But before we show how to have a healthy marriage, we're going to ask and answer a crucial question. Every person who is not married needs to make sure that you join with us next week. Do you know that marriage is not assumed in the Bible? Meaning, did you know that the Apostle Paul said, as wonderful as marriage is, if you can stay single, that would be better. Seriously, he wrote that? He absolutely did. But why did he say that? We're going to find out next week. And we're going to ask the question, is marriage really the best or right option for you? We're going to look at that next week. Now, for those of us who are already married, we're going to do something else this fall. We're offering a marriage course. You can take this marriage course live in person, or you can take this marriage course uh, online through the Zoom format. Now, we're offering it Tuesdays as a Zoom format, so you can take it from your your home. You and your spouse can sit in front of your uh, computer and take this course online if you'd like through Zoom. Or you can take it live at either of our campuses. Wednesday evening, it'll be live in person at our Vancouver campus. Thursday evening, it'll be live in person at our Port Coquitlam campus. So go to our website right now, broadwaychurch.com. Scroll down on that homepage and you can reserve your spot today, either way. Now, you may be watching and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know, Darren, I don't know about taking a course. Listen, remember we learned at the beginning of this whole COVID thing that we were going to see this as an uh, opportunities and not obstacles? We we're gonna, God was going to show us the opportunities within the obstacles that were before us right now. Well, listen, why not see this unique season of being more homebound this fall than you normally are as an opportunity to improve your marriage, as an opportunity to learn how to get closer to God's design for your marriage? Take the marriage course this fall. It's for everyone. A couple of years ago, our entire staff took this course together. It's an excellent resource. It's an excellent tool to tweak and to sharpen your marriage relationship. Do it for your spouse. Put your spouse first and you'll build a marriage that will last. Do it for your children. The more you improve your marriage, the better you position your children for success in life. So visit our website, sign up today, and take that first step towards getting even closer to God's design for your marriage. Let's pray. First of all, God, I thank you for your design as outlined in your word. I thank you for the truth that you give us. And I pray for every marriage that's represented by the people who are watching me today. You know all the difficulties and the troubles and the trials that marriages undergo. And you know the situation of every person that's watching me right now. And I pray that your kingdom will come and that your will will be done in every one of those relationships. I pray for your peace and your power. I pray for restoration in marriages that are in trouble, marriages that are in crisis. I pray that you do miraculous things 
in the lives of husbands and wives. And for those who are uh, single right now and they're, they're searching about your direction for their lives, I pray that you bring clarity and peace to their heart and lives. And I pray that somehow you'd use this series as a way of leading them and guiding them into truth. And for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that by your spirit you would reveal yourself to them that you would make yourself known to them, that they would experience the purest love imaginable that you have for them. In fact, in fact, if that's you right now and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, why not pray this prayer with me? Accept his gift of forgiveness. Pray this with me. God, I acknowledge my need for forgiveness. I have not lived according to your design in my life. I've rebelled against you. I don't want to live that way anymore. So I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit and take my life into the direction that you designed me to live from this moment forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, or maybe you need prayer in your life for, for some reasons, maybe nothing that we even spoke about today, text the number on the screen right now, and a pastor will respond to you and help you in any way that we can, or help you take the next step in your spiritual journey. Also, don't forget to visit our website, broadwaychurch.com. Scroll down on that first page to the marriage course, and you can sign up today. I'd love to see a part of our marriage course this fall. God bless you. Next Sunday, we continue in the series and we ask the question, so how do I know if marriage is for me? We're going to look at that next week. God bless you. See you then.